I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone, and welcome to the podcast. For most people, when they open a piece of printed music, what they see is something they assume to be correct, and expect to be the composer's final intentions. And why not? It seems perfectly reasonable. But it's become more and more apparent over the years that early engravings and publications of classical music, late 18th and early 19th century music in particular, are very often riddled with errors and confusion. I suppose we can understand this when we think that it was nearly all being churned out for immediate commercial gain. The rapid growth of both the public concert industry and homemade music making fed off each other and created a huge market for publishers to sell their wares. My celebrated guest today is Jonathan Delmar, a highly unusual person, as he readily admits, who has spent a great part of his life bringing his phenomenal analytical and musical skills to this area of scholarship. Beethoven is his great passion. And in this interview, the kernel of what he says will appeal to anyone who wants to gain a historical perspective on how this great music has been passed down to us. The geeky parts, and there are lots of them, will appeal to all my conductor and score-following friends who are listening. It's fascinating stuff. So, Jonathan, you have this wonderful career um, as... as um, a musicologist, I would say, I suppose, in the most general uh, sense of the word, uh, with fabulous and, and numerous editions of uh, all sorts of composers and their material, Beethoven in particular, who we'll come to in a moment. But let me ask you this question. Why do you think there's actually a need to go back to the printed material that, that's been in circulation for 100, 200 years? Well, it doesn't matter how long ago the music was published. It might be five years ago or 400. The point is, are there mistakes in the edition? Publishers are always in a hurry because time is money. And if they were working from the composer's autograph manuscript, notes may have been misread. So it can be worthwhile to have another careful look, taking plenty of time about it. Because Beethoven's handwriting was messy, Publishers required him to submit a copyist's score, and even the best copyists make mistakes. Beethoven checked the copy, but he didn't pick up everything. So there are two stages of possible error, and we can look at his autograph manuscript, sometimes in the knowledge, this is the exciting thing, that we are checking every note for the first time since that copyist made his score. Then sometimes the copyist got it right, but the engraver made a mistake. And either Beethoven overlooked it, or, as often, he wasn't even sent a proof to correct. We'll come to that gripe of Beethoven's later. But the point is that the publishing process goes from autograph to copyist score, to first edition, to second edition, to modern score, to more modern score. And it's like Chinese whispers. New mistakes can creep in at any and every stage. It's really important at some point to wipe the slate clean and go back to the original manuscript to check what the composer actually wrote. I think that's that's a wonderful answer, and, and it's pretty comprehensive, which is which is no less than I'd expect from you. So I've often thought, and and maybe this is true, maybe it's not true, but uh, that being said, in that in that wonderful answer you gave, 
Uh, I'm sure these publishers of the day who were really just establishing a new industry were, um, were all out to, to, uh, to make their money on this and, and maybe took shortcuts and weren't really looking to posterity and they're just trying to churn material out and, and uh, create a market for this. So um, I, yeah. I really understand now a little more about why we, we need to go back and, and look at these things in earnest. And let's say we come to this, this wonderful material that is as much as we can imagine the composer wanted to to have uh, representing him out there on paper um uh, there must be some sort of balance that we we have to come to um between between the the printed word um and the room for performers to be able to interpret to use their own imagination, their own creativity. You'd, you'd never argue that we've got to just stick with this as, as, as the Holy Grail. Well, there are two ways of looking at this. I've always said that I'd rather listen to Furtwängler's inspired interpretation of a Beethoven symphony using an old faulty edition, even with the odd wrong note, because the performance has a spirituality, a magic that may be lacking if you listen to a nobody conducting a mediocre performance from my edition with all the right notes right. But if you mean, is the performer entitled to actually change the notes that Beethoven is known without any doubt to have written? That is another matter which I feel very passionately about. Because we know that in the 18th century there was a tradition of embellishment, it has become the fashion in the last 10 or 20 years, as recently as that, to use the composer's text as no more than a starting point for the performer's win, according to which they feel at liberty to add inane twiddles, distort melodic lines, and so on. The worst sinner in this respect, sorry to name and shame, but he is really outrageous, is David Zimmer. And another is the pianist Igor Levitch. We know from a letter Beethoven wrote to Czerny that he disliked and disapproved of this. And as we progress through history and composers notated their music more and more precisely, we can be more and more confident that we must play what is written, not depart willfully from it. But what about Mozart, who manifestly wrote within that tradition and even contributed to it in the form of suggested embellishments for some of his arias? You see, my thinking is that Mozart was always showing up incompetence. And here he was saying, you can embellish the music of run-of-the-mill composers without risk, but if you dare to embellish Mozart, you have to be Mozart. Otherwise, you may turn a beautiful melody into something cheap and horrendous. But sadly, they all do it nowadays, especially in the sublime clarinet quintet, which I cannot listen to anymore because every clarinetist destroys it with cheap variants and twiddles. But there's another issue here. It's also become fashionable in our constant search for something fresh and new to resurrect composers' first thoughts, discarded versions, and play them as if they were an equally valid alternative version of the piece. This applies especially to the Beethoven Violin Concerto, in which some soloists, especially Patricia Kopachinskaya, have been lauded to the skies for their fresh new look at the concerto, but which is actually a total falsification of what Beethoven wanted. I cannot stress too highly that this is a false god, a fundamental disservice to the composer, especially Beethoven, who endlessly honed his works until he arrived at perfection, upon which he published it and then always left the piece alone, never indulged, like, for example, Mahler, in subsequent pangs and revisions. We must play the piece as Beethoven left it and wanted it, 
not resurrect earlier notes and phrases which he thought better of, revised, supplanted, and definitively renounced. Now, most people listening to this podcast will have an interest in, in music and the arts in general, I hope, uh, but they might not necessarily know about you, your family, and the, the amazingly strong musical background you have, both in performance and musicology. Would you mind enlightening us just a little bit into that? Well, of course. I suppose one is steered by what the world wants of one. You do what you think you are good at and enjoy, but then you have to see whether the world likes it. Since I wasn't a prodigy at the piano, cello or flute, I thought it best to have a general musical education and so first did a degree at Oxford, then went to the Royal College and worked on my instruments. And the cello progressed quite well, but it seems people liked my conducting. So I flew with that and went quite a long way with it. I did well in several competitions and had a reasonable professional career for some years in the 1980s. But you will know this. There are so many non-musical things you have to get right to be a successful conductor. And one thing I could not do at all was working with people, being interested in and sympathetic to their personal problems. Whereas I was only interested in the music. Nowadays, that's not good enough. I often think that to be a successful conductor, it's more important to be a politician, a diplomat, even a good fundraiser, than to be a first-rate musician with a profound knowledge of the repertoire and insights to make an inspired interpretation. Because you can get caught. The first trumpet says something awkward that puts you in a spot, and you have to have the right retort instantly without being left at a disadvantage. I just cannot do that. Another is being able to make snap decisions instantly, whereas I need time to think. So I found that the professional dates fell away. And though, though I always did a lot with youth orchestras who have the same innocent enthusiasm that I had. But the conducting was far from inevitable. I had always said that because my father was a conductor, he was Norman Delmar, that of course I would not conduct and risk comparison with him. But people seemed to like what I did, and so I continued it. But you say musicological, and I've never been happy with that word. It seems to imply somehow that you aren't a musician. You know, they say a musician hears music, but a musicologist reads it. <laughs> and all the books my father wrote, and all the editions I have done, have been the result of hearing music and experiencing it, rather than studying it and reading it. So I never call myself a musicologist any more than my father did. I suppose I call myself a Beethoven editor, but you can't really put that on your passport, can you? <laughs> Were my editions inevitable? Well, I got that curiosity from my father about different editions of a symphony having sometimes different notes. And we both used to look at facsimiles of autographs to see what the composer wrote. And I suppose for him, it was always about the conducting, but I got more and more interested in what the right notes were. We both had the same interests, but he had more of one and I had more of the other. So in a way, it was inevitable, I suppose, yes. Now you shy away from that term musicological, but on your mother's side as well, there, there was a strong interest in, in music. It wasn't just through your, your amazing father. And again, for, for those folks out there who uh, weren't fortunate enough to, to experience your father, Norman Delmar. He was not only a, a marvellous conductor, he was, he was somebody with a stunning knowledge of musical scores in so many ways. I had the good fortune to be able to go to his classes uh, on Saturday mornings at, at the family home. And I have 
a lot of his books. Uh, one of my personal Bibles is Anatomy of the Orchestra, which is just the most amazing book on, on orchestration. And um, as you say, from a, a practicing musician's perspective, rather than uh, somebody who's trying to teach orchestration. Um, so that's your father's side. I know there are other instrumentalists and other performers in the family. Um, but from your mother's side as well, there was a strong interest in music, wasn't there? Yeah, my mother was a played the viola, but only as a student, really. She didn't play professionally. But yes, her brother was the Times music critic for decades, William Mann. And it was really because of, he was called Bo, because of William Mann, Bo, that's really how my father got to be able to court my mother, because my mother had already said, you get lost, you know, and <laughs> Bo wanted to, was keen to have in-depth conversations with my father. And so my father found himself being invited to the family home and my mother was caught. <laughs> so that's how that happened. But you say shy away. I don't shy away from musicological. I, re I reject it. I actually say it's the wrong word. Now, we've already said you're, you're truly renowned for your extensive work on Beethoven. Uh, is he someone that you feel was particularly badly served by contemporary publishers and why? No, publishers have their limitations, but there was often a lot of goodwill. I always think of that horrendous correction the poor publishers had to make to the Fifth Symphony when Beethoven announced he wanted an extra bar in no fewer than five places in the first movement. You know, ba 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 be, ba 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 be, extra bar. They had a truly dreadful time squeezing that into every separate instrumental part. But they did it. And sometimes the first edition would drop onto Beethoven's mat and he would immediately see a mistake and shoot off a furious letter to the publisher demanding that he correct every single printed copy in Indian ink. And you know, some of them did. Extraordinary. There was only one gripe that Beethoven often had, and that was that he always requested to be able to see and correct a proof. Reasonable enough, but often they didn't bother. And then I think he was right to be furious. I didn't know that about the extra bar. Didn't you? you no. I, if you, I don't know whether you've got my father's books on conducting Beethoven. I've got them on conducting Elgar. I've just been racking my ah. shelves and I haven't got the Beethoven one. You haven't got the Beethoven one. No, but only the, the, first, the, the one on Beethoven symphonies has as an illustration on the cover, it has uh, the Beethoven's autograph of the first bars of the fifth symphony. Ah. And you can see there that it goes, ba 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 be ba la, ba 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 la. I mean, pause, you know, fermata on the F, ba 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 ba, sorry, D, on the D, because that extra bar was added later at proof stage. So does that mean you think there are still some unresolved, maybe even unresolvable questions in his published works? And does that even apply to things like the metronome markings? Yes, indeed. There are some of both unresolved and unresolvable, which is why I insist that it is inadequate for a new edition merely to give performers one reading, which could just as likely be the wrong one. You have to tell performers up front that here was a truly difficult decision, which could just as easily have gone the other way. So you clearly give performers the opportunity to disagree with you, the editor, if they so choose. So if it's a really important point which would change the music, I add a clear footnote in the score. For all the little points, I have two appendices in the commentary. Appendix one, 
is called suspected errors, where in the first column, you get those places where the score follows the reading in the sources, but many musicians suspect it could have been the composer's mistake all along. Whereas the second column gives you the reading in the sources, but I had to judge it inconceivable, so I changed it. Then the second appendix, appendix two, is alternative readings, where you have two sources with different readings. Both are authentic because Beethoven wrote one, and he, we know he checked the second. So if it differs from the first, it's possible it was his own revision. We just don't know. So I make the best judgment I can, explain in the commentary, but then I have to be upfront and say to the performer, if you wish, here you can disagree. There would be evidence on your side for preferring this other reading. So I always recommend the performers look through these two appendices and make their choices as they wish. But sadly, how many musicians buy commentaries? They're usually dry, unhelpful things set out like a telephone directory, where the point you look up invariably isn't there. Maybe the editor argues that all the sources have his reading, so no need. But instead, I really try to make my commentaries user-friendly, readable, and helpful. The worst unresolvable questions are when the autograph manuscript is lost, and we only have the first edition. You look at a note, and it can't possibly be right. What can you do? Well, I say, if it's conceivable, my magic word, I print it, but guess an alternative for Appendix 1. But if I guess it's inconceivable, I'll check that with other experienced conductors I know. And if we all agree it absolutely has to be a mistake, then I'll print the probable reading in brackets, and the source reading then goes in that other column of Appendix 1. I think that's the most honest way I can think of doing it. I don't think any other editions do that. Well, I think what's very interesting is you've just admitted there to uh, the need for honesty and a degree of, yeah. of yeah. openness, almost subjectivity in, in, in there. And, uh, and, and I think that's very telling. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about you'd much rather listen to um, a, a, a compromised performance by somebody as great as Furtwängler than something sterile, accurate, and uh, boring, but from somebody who considers it's historically informed. And uh, again, I think that's that's to your credit and does you a huge service to the work you do by being able to include that. I hate anyone to go away from an interview with you thinking that this is um, this is just a dry academic exercise and has no place in the real world because Thank I think you. that approach yeah. is is what uh, is is death to live performance. So anyway, we're we're getting off on a bit of a tangent there. I struggle with the metronome markings though, Jonathan. Can you put me at ease? Right. Finally, the old chestnut about metronome marks. Yes, indeed, it applies to metronome marks on two levels. We could talk about metronome marks for a long time, but very briefly. I'm convinced that there are two distinct types of error in metronome marks. Errors of degree, where you sing the beginning of the movement in your kitchen, and it goes, so you write down dotted minimum equals 60. But in practice and in the hall, it simply needs that bit more time to speak and to breathe. As is clear later, when you get to So that is a small error of degree. But then there are also errors of fact, where a number was misread by the publisher, or more often, a copyist assumed the number applied to a crotchet pulse, whereas the composer had assumed it was a minim pulse. 
I've recently done a revision of my own edition of the Ninth Symphony. And if you can get to see the new score, which has the whole commentary in the back, this handsome leather bound thing, um, if you can get to see that, you'll see that all discussed in the context of the supremely controversial metronome mark of the trio. Well, that's all well and good, isn't it? But where does something like 200 years of a developed performance tradition come into your thinking? Do you have to even engage with something like that? In one sense, yes. And in another, no. In one sense, all performances simply use the score in front of them. Well, they would. So they would play that note, wouldn't they? And I don't need to take the performance tradition into account at all when I change the note to the one Beethoven wrote. But there are other more difficult aspects. What do you do when Beethoven wrote that note? All scores print that note, but no one believes it. No one plays it. It's hard to think of the perfect example, but there is that place in the slow movement of the ninth where you're staring down into the abyss and the second violins play ba ba ba. Beethoven marks it pianissimo, but there's no denying that it has this ghastly poignancy and colossal significance, and everyone agrees it absolutely has to be at least mezzo forte. Or a little earlier in the same movement, where the fourth horn solo descends to the absolute bottom G. And then that note is then repeated across the bar line. There's no tie. It goes. And so on. But absolutely everyone plays a tie, which Beethoven didn't write and is not in any score. But there are actual notes like that, too. I can't think of the perfect one, but there's one in the fourth piano concerto where all the sources have. But no pianists believe it. They all play with the B natural. And I think the editor has the duty to be aware of such dilemmas where musicians are unanimous in not believing the authentic text and to take account of them if he possibly can, even though often there's really nothing he can justifiably do. So we've concentrated mainly on Beethoven, and I know that's that's um, your expertise, and it's a great contribution to the to the performance world. But I want to ask you as well: Is there um, at the other end of the scale? Is there one composer you think doesn't need any help? Yes, I think immediately of Brahms, who was such an excellent editor himself, that there are almost no textual problems. But otherwise, frankly, there are problems and mistakes in pretty much every piece in the repertoire. I have a new book at the publisher right now, which lists errors and problems in about 80 pieces right across the orchestral repertoire. So please watch this space. Well, that sounds very much like continuing a, a family tradition, yeah. as I know your, your father did exactly the same. I really will be watching this space and, and looking out for that. So how do you actually get to the sources um, for, the, for the material you work on? With Beethoven, we're very lucky because we have the authoritative thematic catalogue called Kinski, like Kirchel for Mozart, which simply lists all the authentic sources and tells you where to find them. Such catalogues exist for all the most important composers. But yes, 
I myself have always wondered, if you need to edit a piece of, say, Saint-Saëns or Raval, how do you find out what the sources are and where they are? It's much more difficult. You start by looking in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, but there's an awful lot in America. So, Jonathan, what are on your horizons for the near future? Are there projects you're working on you can tell us about? Always. Well, the string quartets are almost done. I only need to do one trip next week for Opus 135, which has been terribly delayed due to the virus, because one important source is in Belgium. And until a few weeks ago, they simply weren't letting anyone in at all. After that will come the three overtures, Prometheus, Coriolan and Egmont. They're at the publisher being printed as we speak. Then will come the Archduke Trio, though I still need to do a couple of trips for that one. Same with the septet. That's also done, but I need to check some details with the autograph in Krakow. The Opus One piano trios are all done and with the publisher, so I'm now working on the middle two, the Opus 70s, which are quite complicated with sources all over the place. But I'm also hoping, this is more of interest to you, to do another couple of Vojak symphonies. If the copies of the autograph ever arrive from Prague, they've had such a dreadful time there with the virus. But after that, well, I seem pretty much to scrape the barrel. What do you think I ought to do? What would anyone like? I don't think there's any Beethoven orchestral music of any importance left to do. I'd like to do some Schubert, but at present, Baron Reiter have forbidden it. Well, we'll leave that question hanging out there to listeners and see if we get any responses as to, as to which areas you should be investigating. Jonathan, this has been absolutely fantastic, as I knew it would be. Um, now, though, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit and ask you, is there, is there anything you'd like to tell us about yourself and your work that I've missed? Well, thank you. How kind of you to give me this platform for some of my hobby horses. I suppose I'd like to put in another word for my critical commentaries, which I really do try to make as entertaining as possible. And that's not only because the integrity of an edition is the commentary, also because really you shouldn't just take my word for it, especially when I've said there are some decisions that could go either way. Look at those two appendices, read about the merits of both alternatives, then choose. It's a much more interesting approach to live performance than blindly following what the score prints. Another thing, if you ever find a mistake, I, of course I hope you don't because I'm a maniac about mistakes, please for goodness sake tell me or Baron Reiter, it will, I promise, be corrected in the very next printing. And if it's one we didn't know about, you get a prize in the form of any Baron Reiter score you choose. Anything reasonable, of course, not the Ninth Symphony or Mozart Opera. But um, yeah, I do go, I do proofread, I do go through about seven sets of proofs to make sure that everything is absolutely error free. But we're all human and one in a million gets through, you know. So in the end, one thing I'd like to say about markings in editorial brackets. Some editions are full of added editorial markings in brackets, which are no better than arbitrary. The editor just thought they might be a good idea. There's actually no justification for them at all. And this has given bracketed markings a bad name. Many musicians think they are being virtuous if they ignore them. But I must plead, my, in my editions, no editorial marking is allowed unless it is founded on a specific compelling analogy as explained in the commentary. So in my editions, please accept and play all the markings in brackets. They are essential.
I do have two crusades, <laughs> which actually are both discussed in one article I wrote for Early Music in 2012. One is the rather awkward fact that there's absolutely no doubt all the classical composers assumed that when you come back to the minuet after the trio, you play both repeats just as you did the first time. This is awkward because we just don't have the time and patience today that they did then. One way of ensuring that an orchestra never asks you back is to do the Schubert Great C Major Symphony with all the repeats. The strings simply die. But I'm quite certain that in his day, they played both scherzo repeats after the trio. There's no doubt about that. The other crusade I have is Beethoven's five-part scherzos. You know, of course, for example, the Seventh Symphony, scherzo, trio, scherzo, trio, scherzo. But in some pieces, like, for example, the pastoral, the second scherzo is actually identical to the first in every respect, so that many lazy modern editions simply indicate it within repeat signs, which look to the performer like an optional repeat. And even authoritative performances like Carrion leave out that repeat and shorten the movement to little more than half its intended length. We know absolutely definitely that Beethoven wanted indicated and assumed that the movement would be printed out in full. And my edition of the pastoral is the first since Beethoven's lifetime to restore that. It doesn't give you the option of shortening it. That is the movement. It has 474 or whatever it is, bars. The other two pieces that suffer badly from this are the Archduke Trio and the E-flat Trio Opus 70 number two. And of course, I'm hoping that both will be repaired very soon. So I'm working on the heroic at the moment, and I noticed you've marked something for uh, string solos. In the last movement, in the finale. Yes, yes, in the, in the, Just before the, in the third variation, I think, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in third variation. That's the one. No prizes for, for singing. Beats that, isn't it? Yeah. Viola solo. And then there's a cello solo. Yes. And he marks it solo. And I faffed around for a long time. My first printings, the first printings of my edition, um, rather balked, shied away from declaring that this was a single player solo on the rather weaselly grounds that later on in Johann Strauss and Brahms, you do get passage in the strings marked solo, which definitely mean the section solo and not one player. But I'm now absolutely convinced that that is a false reasoning, false analogy, false parallel, and that Beethoven did want one solo player, just as he did in the trio of the Eighth Symphony. That is a cello solo. And we have the parallel in that Haydn 95, Haydn Symphony number 95. There's no sim single cellist is going to thank you for making the Eighth Symphony a... a, a yeah, they are. They are. All the tutti ones who don't have to play it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, what I meant was there, there is no principal cellist who is going to thank you for making that a solo. <laughs> I don't know. They love it. I, well, I'm hoping they'll enjoy it more than trying to play it. As a, it's always a mess as a tutti, isn't it's it? It's so hard to play. Yeah. It's, it's not because it's not a tutti passage. It's a solo passage. And the answer is yes, you do the viola solo and the cello solo in the Eroica, but don't then be tempted to say, oh, well, then he must have meant it a string quartet, a solo string quartet, as John Elliott Garden does. It isn't. Then you've got to find your reasons. And I think once you've done it a few times, you'll find that's what balances with the 31st violins. Yeah. 
Don't you find as well sometimes when you, you yourself conduct these things uh, that initially when, when something comes almost as a revelatory moment that, wow, that's fascinating. And then you have this sort of trajectory, which is, I'm not really sure about it. No one coming to like it or no one going away from it. Something like that. It takes time to settle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It takes that. Exactly. Years that. to a, get used to. Pizzicato at the end of the um, uh, second moon of the seventh symphony. There's one extra pizzicato. That E is pizzicato. Yeah. Bum, bum, Blink. bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, the E is pizzicato. Just the E. Yeah. The arco comes on the last bar on the F sharp. Bum, bum, bum. And we're used to going, pa, yum, bum, bum. Well, only one extra pizzicato note. Hmm. And, pia and piano. No, you can't do crescendo on a pizzicato. Okay. Okay. You've caught me out on that. I thought it was either or, either all arco or all pizzicato. I seem to remember your dad telling me a story that... There's somebody, yeah, there was a conductor. I can't remember who it was. Cliver, Eric Cliver. Yeah, who used to say he'd seen the autograph he'd seen and the... it was all pizzicato. He'd remembered it wrongly. because the But does the manuscript exist? I thought yeah. it was destroyed yeah. in the war. No, oh. no, it was lost during the war. They'd, and then they found it in Krakow in 1975. So that page is illustrated in my critical commentary. You'll see it in Beethoven's writing. The arc is on the F sharp. Now, Jonathan, usually at this point in, in my interviews, I ask my guests, and you're no exception to this, what is the one thing you think you're most proud of? Kind of you to ask. It gives the opportunity to be arrogant, which is risky. I try to be as humble as possible to allow for the awful possibility that I may feel proud of this or that note, which seems like an exciting discovery. But if I ever get to the pearly gates, I will meet Beethoven and he will box me over the ears for having printed that note, which was, of course, his own stupid mistake, as the publishers realized when they corrected it. I can only hope that what I've done has been better than what's in other editions. But of course, you can never get absolutely everything right. And it's terrifying to think of the decisions which actually, though no one will ever know until they meet Beethoven, I got wrong. But I suppose the most world-shattering thing I discovered, which I really think has to be watertight, cannot possibly be a mistake, is those notorious ties in the horns in the finale of the Ninth Symphony, before the Freude chorus. You know, not all 12 times, but and then the next time it was really funny because I first put them into a 12-page correction list for the symphony which Simon Rattle had asked me for and the very next day the phone rang and there was Simon absolutely incandescent with amazement did I really mean what he then sang out to me and I had to say Yes, isn't it extraordinary? I've given you what the man wrote. Now you go away and make sense of it. And I think we've all been trying to make sense of it ever since. It's now 25 years, and I think some of us are still battling with it, but it is so fascinating. And I've since found, this is the extraordinary, another extraordinary thing, I've since found exactly the same thing in one of the Opus 18 quartets. You know, parallels between early Beethoven and late Beethoven in the last movement of Opus 18, number three, also D major, the cello has some 
similarly identically bizarre tiles as you're just coming around to the recapitulation it's exactly the same point mathematically in the movement extra ties which have been left out in modern editions the parallel is quite uncanny opus 80 number three finale please have a look at my score <laughs> i'll be heading to that post haste thank you andrew jonathan delmar this has been fantastic I'm really grateful to you for, for spending so much time today and for enlightening me and a lot of my listeners on so many things that we didn't really know about before. Thank you very much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Best wishes. The ebullient, effusive, and obviously passionate Jonathan Delmar. If you've ever wondered what an impresario is or does, then the next podcast is very much for you with stories including the likes of Princess Diana, Itzhak Perlman and the KGB, Raymond Gebe's career in promoting classical music events gave him one of the most fascinating lives in the performing arts world, and he shared many of those amazing and often risky adventures with me in our conversation. So join me next time for an interview you won't want to miss. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point.